Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, she is a Democrat running for the United States House of Representatives in Texas's 31st Congressional District, right outside of Austin. She's also a computer engineer, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say she is a proud former owner of a 1984 Toyota Tercel. Donna, Imam, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me, Justin. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, but I, you know, I got to dig into this Toyota Tercel that you had. Um, it, this was your first car, right? This is my first car, and it's five speed. And and I'm assuming you still it it conked out eventually, right? You don't have it still. You don't own it still. I don't. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was my first car. It had a gearbox that would lock up, um, but it was extremely reliable and it got me around campus all the time. So it definitely worked out for me. I had a, I had a Mercury Mystique because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of like modestly priced cars that have alliteration in them. So I had a Mercury Mystique uh, and I had it in college, kind of like you did. Um, but a tree fell in the middle of it. It was like I it was like I went like shopping for a Christmas tree, and I was like, I want that one, and it Ow. was it totally collapsed in the car, and uh, it ended up paying for the car I still have to this day, like almost more like a decade later. So, um, well, you know, there's a real uh, good secret about a Toyota Tercel. This is a Toyota Tercel hatchback, and the cool thing about um, it is if you open the hatchback and you put down the back seat it can almost function as a truck. You could put huge, you know, couches in the back and, you know, students move around <laughs> every, every quarter. So it really came in handy. And I have a story about damage too. So I got rear-ended in the snow because uh, this was out in Angola, Indiana. And uh, I didn't have the $900 to replace that hatchback. So for the, for the rest of my time in college, and even while I worked for a while, I drove around with a Toyota Tercel with a back really badly <laughs> dented in. <laughs> I was going to say, you must have been very popular around, uh, is it is it Angle? Is that how you say Angle, Indiana? It's Angola, Indiana. Angola. Yeah. We have a... Yeah, it's... We, we have a huge, huge base of fans in Angola, Indiana. I just want to tell you, Donna. Okay. Yeah, it's, te it's 10 minutes from the uh, Michigan border and the Ohio border. So that's where you know you are there. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And you and, and, and I, I got to ask, did you have a name for your car? Did you have like a lot of people name their, their, their first cars? I didn't. But, you know, this is the car that got me to all my internships and co-ops through my junior and senior year. So <laughs> it served me well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, I think there's a lot of love that people have for the first cars. And, and actually, so I found this. So people are like wondering how I know this. And I, I promise I, I have not been stalking Donna too much. Uh, just just enough for this interview. But um, but I did check out your website and you've got I th one of the coolest things I think about, um, you know, interviewing different candidates is you get to learn a little bit about them personally. And you have on your website, old photos of you kind of throughout the years. And, yeah. and, and I think it was, first of all, just a really good way to kind of personalize it. But, but one of the other things I, I saw when you were in college, uh, you were in the, you were a college DJ. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> That's... I played, you know, nice you know, pop tunes and uh, throughout the weekend. Yeah, it was uh, it was a really cool thing for me to do. And I had my DJ's license and everything. They have you, they give you license licenses. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, wow. You need a you need a um, a DJ license to get on the air. Did, does that come with like a DJ name? Like were you were you like Drive Time Donna? Or <laughs> what was? You know, I was a, I was quite a geek in in college, and I just wasn't that cool to be honest. <laughs> oh, see, I. I could see. I, I feel like though know, you have a good personality. You could be. You could be part of like a morning zoo crew, you know, like like Donna and the Bullfrog in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It'd be. Uh, yeah. I wish I was that cool <laughs> when I was back in college. Seriously. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate you being being on the podcast, and and I know you are. Um, I actually have family in Austin, and in the district that you're representing is is right mm-hmm. outside of Austin. Is that right? Yeah, so it actually includes um, uh, quite a bit of Northwest Austin, believe it or not. So for those of uh, for those of the folks that are re- listening and don't know a lot about Texas, maybe Texas is severely gerrymandered, and Austin is sliced into six little pieces in order to dilute the vote. And uh, and what they've done is taken little pieces of Austin and appended it with huge rural areas. So it's very similar for Texas thirty first district. It includes a big chunk of Northwest Austin. And then the suburbs of all of Austin in the north, including Cedar Park and Round Rock, some of the bigger cities. And then it goes on to Leander and Georgetown um, to round out Williamson County, basically. And how did it get to be that way? Is that just is that the Republican uh, legislator over there? Like, how, like is yeah. that? Well, we've had a Republican legislator for a long time, a majority in the Texas State House and. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, a lot of people might know about Austin is Austin is fairly liberal. It's actually deep, deep blue. So the only way to ensure that they minimize the number of Democrats that can serve in the Texas, Texas legislature is to take pieces of it and, you know, dilute the vote as much as possible. So that's really um, uh, and every 10 years uh, after census, you know, these um, lines get redrawn. So that's really it in a nutshell. And, and if you get elected to Congress, how would you mm-hmm. address, I mean, especially because it, it's something that gerrymandering is, is rampant on a, on a national level. You know, we obviously yes. just had a, an election in North Carolina that, that was centered around that and, you know, all around the country. But how would you address it if you were elected to Congress? Because that's so, always a huge issue. Right. So this is done at a state level. So this is out of the reach of a a federal, you know, um, position. This is really about Texas and how Texas wants to be represented. Um, And so what happens every 10 years is when they get redrawn. And if you're a U.S. congressional um, candidate or you are a U.S. Congress person, then you would be, you know, assigned one of these districts once it was redrawn and you would be, you would be able to run for it. But really in terms of setting where the district lines are, it has to do with the legislator of Texas. Um, and so it's completely dependent on them. And that's why it's so important, um, for Texans to pay not just attention to federal races, but also to state races, um, because it does make a difference in, you know, the services that are available to you. For example, uh, if you live in a different county, if you live in Williamson County versus Travis County, so Travis County has most of Austin in it, uh, you know, your services might be different than what you get in Williamson County. So, you know, just district lines are really, it's a really big deal. And we have the census coming up. Um, and this is going to be, a, this is a huge impact. This is why Texas is important when it comes to 2020. It's going to have a massive impact on what Texas looks like after this 2020 election. Right. I mean, it kind of leads into the next question because obviously with Beto O'Rourke's candidacy for Mm -hmm. the Senate last time around in 2018, uh, 
there was a lot of hype and a lot of uh, excitement on the Democrat side. I mean, I I threw a party in in my studio apartment out here in Oakland. Uh, just the dog was here, but turns out <laughs> it was a hell of a party. Um, but uh, he didn't win, and so I think I think in some ways that may have sort of dampened the spirits of people who think that that Texas can go blue. But how are you feeling about that? Obviously, I know you know you're running, but when you go across your district, and I'm sure you've gone across the state as well and talked to voters, and how does it? How, how do you feel about 2020 and being able to turn Texas blue? I think uh, there's an extremely high chance, if not, we're on the verge of turning blue. And here's the reason why. There's been a population explosion in Texas. It's one of the you know fastest growing in terms of the po- in terms of the demographics. The demographics have changed significantly. If you know anything about Austin at all, Austin used to be a sleepy little town, right? College town. And over the last two decades, um, specifically in the last probably seven to eight years, the population of Austin has quadrupled, okay? And what's that? what that's done is it's pushed people out into the suburbs, right, uh, of Austin because they're looking for, you know, um, affordable housing that they can live in. They want people, young families are looking for good schools, so they tend to move out to the suburbs, and what's that, what that's doing is, is um, it's really changing the way people look at, you know, um, Texas as a whole. If you look at the people who are moving out, a lot of the younger families, they tend to be left-leaning. And, um, and for, if you take my district, for example, Texas 31. Texas 31 is made up of two counties, okay? So you have Williamson County and you have Bell County. And Williamson County is growing so fast that we get 120 new people moving in every single day. Now compare that with only 35 people moving into Austin, which is one of the highest growing, you know, metropolitan cities in, in the country. Mm -hmm. So the demographics are changing. The people are changing. They're wanting representation that reflects their specific needs, right? People need good jobs. They need healthcare. They have kids in school. Um, so it's a, it's a completely different game. And if you look at Texas 31st district in 2018, we came close to only 2.9% of flipping blue. I mean, that's technically within the margin of error, right? Yep. So there's a huge opportunity here, and I don't see how it doesn't flip blue in 2020. And if I thought it wouldn't, trust me, I wouldn't be running. Well, and, and I got to ask, with all those people moving into Austin and around Austin, is is Austin still weird? What a great question. <laughs> I think there's... <laughs> I think Austin, there's still some weirdness about it. And... Um, the cool thing about Austin is that there are still parts of Austin. And when you go down to the UT campus or you go down to South Congress, you still feel that vibe. And it's still one of those cities where you can come out and people of all ages are so friendly. And there's and one cool thing about Austin is people are super casual. Like nobody wears anything but sandals and shorts here. And we get summer pretty much around the year. So we still have that weird factor. That's See, that's, that is weird. You know why? Because, and I can say this. I'm from Florida. That sounds very Florida-like. Sandals and shorts year-round. Yeah. That is, if somebody could, like, wrestle a gator in the middle of UT Austin campus, then I think it may 
it may be almost as weird as Florida is overall. It's very, <laughs> yeah, it's very common for us to be sitting outdoors in sandals eating tacos in January. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by pumpkins. It's October, it's our time to shine. Carve us up or put us in a pie. Fuck you turkeys, you can't wait. Get a pumpkin before it's too late. This message brought to you by the American Gourd Association. We had 11 months and that's the best we could come up with. Pumpkins! I feel sick. Ready to heal, certain but ready to down. And I feel funny but ready to cry, silent but ready to shout. From what I can tell, a lot of what you're doing is trying to register voters. And am I right there? Is that is that correct? That's definitely part of it, but it's also getting out the vote, right? Mm-hmm. Registering voters and getting out the vote both have to happen. People need to believe that there is a very good chance of flipping blue. So a lot of times people look at Texas and they're like, oh, that's red. You know, what's my, what's the point? Why should I even vote? So people need not only to know that we're on the verge of flipping blue, but they need something to vote for. One of the things I found is I took the first six months of this year just to research. So I'm an emerging technology research by profession, right? I'm a computer engineer, but I also work in, you know, AI and machine learning. And I try to understand how these apply to, you know, industrial in, 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 you know, the private industry and how they apply to technology and what companies are going to do with these technologies. Right. And so when I looked at Texas 31 for the last six months, I went around, you know, precinct to precinct, city by city. And I talked to any nonprofit and any group organization club that would talk to me to try to understand what it is that they need. And what I found is that Democrats will not just vote against something. They need to vote for something. And that's what our campaign is all about. Our campaign is here's what we want for our community and our country and our state and our county and our city this is what we need. That's what we really need. And because we have a high number of new people moving in, voter registration is definitely part of the strategy. But we also got to get out the vote. And the way we get out the vote is by giving people something to vote for. Mm-hmm. Was there like just on a personal level, was there a moment where, you know, a specific moment where you're like, OK, now I'm going to go run for office? Like because you have a career. But was there a specific moment, like a specific turning point Perhaps November 8th, 2016. <laughs> so, you know, I, the biggest suburb, suburb city in Texas 31 is Round Rock. And when you go to downtown Round Rock, right, there's a whole bunch of restaurants on both sides. And, and they're really awesome places to go. And I've gone and walked all of downtown Round Rock and walked into every single restaurant and talked to any server in any restaurant that would talk to me. And to my dismay, what I found is that there is not a single restaurant server that has health care. And it doesn't just end there, right? I held a healthcare town hall prior to even announcing my run. And all the people that showed up uh, had a healthcare story. And, I, and I'll tell you one in particular. Uh, a lady who showed up said, look, we used to have our own 
business. And during that time, you know, we had health insurance, we paid for it, but it was one of those um, plans that had a really high deductible. And whenever I would get sick, I was some, just somehow power through it. And she said, you know, six months ago, I found out that I have cancer. And right now, we actually, I actually have a job. And so I had really good healthcare coverage. And I actually went to the doctor. And I kept thinking to myself that if I had that old health insurance, right, I would have never gone. They would have never found my cancer. We would have never treated it early. And this is really what's happening in our country that we have 80 million people that are uninsured, underinsured. So even if you have insurance, you are not going to the doctor because you, your deductible is so high. That first $150 to go see the primary care physicians and the tests that come after it that build up, right? You don't have that first 300, 400, 500, 1000 to even pay your deduct until your deductible kicks in. This is the problem that we have all around our country and in my district. And I think what really did it for me was on Christmas Eve, when my mom, who's a super active person, she hurt her knee and it locked up and she became completely immobile. And when we got her into a clinic that was in network after being on the phone for 10 hours, and we got her in front of a doctor, and he said, I can't really do anything until she gets an MRI. And I said, that's great. The reason it took me 10 hours to find you is you guys actually have an MRI machine on site. And he said, let me just check on that. And he came back and he said, you know, I'm in network, but the MRI machine is not. <laughs> wow. Wow. How, how, like, I, I don't even know how that how how does that work? Like how is you tell me, right? Is, and that's when I knew that our system is broken. That's why I'm running on healthcare for all. This is my signature policy, Justin. And and I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's you know people talk about single payer healthcare, right? There's two key elements in my healthcare for all that really transform single-payer healthcare in a way. So when we talk about single-payer healthcare, we talk about bringing it to the 80 million uninsured and underinsured. But every plan, even the, you know, the damn bill that Bernie Sanders wrote, the, it actually doesn't reach all the people fast enough. So people get put into this Medicare for all plan slowly because the real problem that we have in our country is that we don't have enough primary care physicians to even absorb this 80 million. That's the big problem that we have to solve in order to get healthcare to every single person. And my healthcare for all plan that I'm proposing, it's a seven page white paper, does two specific things. One, it infuses the system with more primary care physicians. And that does two things, by the way. Number one, it actually creates a system that can sustain and absorb the 80 million people because now you actually have a doctor to go to. What many Americans don't understand is that today we have a huge lack of primary care physicians in this country. So it creates that system. And number two, what it really does is it lowers the cost of healthcare. And what, what people on private insurance don't realize today is that the system we have, even if you have good private insurance, is unsustainable. It will not last because the costs are out of whack. And so when you catch things early, 
when you can go to your neighborhood primary care physician less than a mile away and you're not using ER as your front line of defense, that's how you reduce the cost. And this is so important for people to realize because we talk about Medicare for all and there are about you know, five or 10 or a dozen studies out there done by groups of all shades of you know, politics, left, right, center. And they all say one thing, which is in order to cover every single person in the United States, we need to spend somewhere between two trillion and three and a half trillion dollars a year. That's the worst, two to three and a half. So the best case they're saying is somewhere around two and the, and the worst case they're saying three and a half. And in 2018, Justin, our country spent $3.65 trillion while leaving out 80 million people. Wow. This is the problem that we need to solve. Um, you're, 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 you're damn right. <laughs> How do you convince somebody who likes their private insurance, who works at a private company, who probably makes a good amount of money. How do you convince them that they should buy into your plan and, 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 you know, how that would help them? Here's the kicker, Justin. I don't have to. So I'm a computer engineer. I worked in fortune 500 my entire career. We're talking almost two decades. Most of my friends are engineers or work in tech companies in Austin, Texas. We're talking about Dell, Google, Amazon, all the big names, Facebook. They all have offices here. And everybody has private health insurance. And there's not a single person that loves their private health insurance. I'll tell you why. Because every single person who is employed lives in layoff anxiety. And what is layoff anxiety? Layoff anxiety is when a company realizes that a product is not going to go to market and they shut down that group. And today you have a really nice healthcare plan and tomorrow you have the option to get COBRA. And does anybody know how much COBRA costs? Oh, I know. So if you're it's a, a husband and wife <laughs> and you have two kids at home and you get laid off on a Friday evening, the first thing in your head is where am I going to come up with the $2,000 starting Monday to cover my kids and my wife and myself? Right. This is the problem with private insurance. This is not sustainable. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you another story. I'm going to talk about a guy who works in a high-tech company who tore his ACL. And he went around and he, he went skiing at the end of the year and tore his ACL and wouldn't get any kind of care for it because of the deductible. Because he said, well, towards the end of the year, I'm going to have to pay my entire deductible. And get this, if you're on private insurance, your deductible isn't very high. It's somewhat, could be $2,000, $3,000. It's a little bit lower. When I say not high, obviously, this is very relative. A lot of people don't have that kind of money either. But he thought to himself, look, I'm going to need PT. I'm going to need PT for 6, 7, 8, 12 months. So he went around in pain for the last quarter of the year so he could start his deductible from January. Just so that he would only have to pay one deductible because the deductible resets January 1st right. every year. Right. So there is nobody that loves their private insurance. And right. if you can institute healthcare for all, which is my signature plan, and we can get primary care physicians to 
open up clinics everywhere and we can infuse the system and build the infrastructure so that scale the infrastructure so everybody can be looked at. We can lower the cost and lowering the cost is the most important thing. Lowering the cost, scaling the system. Those are the two things my single payer healthcare for plan does that right now are not being talked about at the national level. Right. Let me ask you about, you've got um, some other plans that are for all. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about those plans. And um, I mean, I've watched politics for more than 30 years now. I mean, some there's got to be winners and losers, Donna. Who's losing? Who's losing among your plans here? Yeah, there's, there's uh, the, the only the only losers here are the billionaires that are stashing their cash uh, overseas in the Cayman Islands. Uh, that, that there's no accountability. Really, there's no other loser than that. So you're in this, saying in this Donald case. Trump's entire cabinet is what you're saying here. <laughs> you're talking about Wilbur Ross. I, and- I want to tell you that yeah. in my plans there are mostly winners, and the winners. All the winners are the American people. For example, if I talk about my education for all plan, right? We hear presidential cam- you know, candidates talking about free tuition, right? The way I'm approaching these problems are completely different. So as a computer engineer, I, re- I led billion-dollar product lines, right? So the way I think about you know, going after things is what is the ultimate solution that I want? And then I work back to find solutions to get there. The ultimate scenario that I want and then find solutions to get their work back. That's how I approach every problem. Now, here's what's happening in the United States. We have rural hospitals and rural health clinics shutting down everywhere. We don't have good teachers in our K through 12 system in rural areas and underserved areas and underserved you know, communities. We don't have enough mental health professionals. And by the way, remember you talked about private health care? It doesn't matter if you have the greatest insurance policy. Try calling around and find find a mental health counselor. It'll take you weeks, if not months, to even get an appointment. Just because you have insurance doesn't mean that you're going to find someone who's in network, right? Right. So we have a huge problem, a huge gap where we don't have we don't have enough social care workers, especially in rural areas. So what my education for all plan does is number one. First and foremost, it puts a stop to this Ponzi scheme of student loans that our government has instituted. There are options out of that. But more importantly, what it does is it incentivizes our kids to go into the most in-demand areas. So I'm talking about going into being a primary care physician, nurse practitioner, school teacher, uh, social care um, Areas that, that, that our communities really, really need. And here's the reason why. Right now, our physicians come mostly from really, really affluent families. And what happens when you become a doctor? It takes you eight years to get out of med school and another three years to get residency, right? So you're hitting your early 30s. And what happens when you hit your early 30s these days? You get married, you have kids. And then when you have kids, you want the kids to spend time with their grandparents. So you tend to move closer to your family. Right. And where are you moving? You're moving back to those affluent communities. Yep. We're not incentivizing kids from our underserved communities to go into professions like primary care uh, and being physicians. We need to do that. My healthcare, my education for all plan just does exactly that. If you 
promise to go into these in-demand areas and you make a pledge to go and serve in these underserved and rural communities, then we reimburse you the expenses that you incurred for getting that education. Uh, you literally described the same scenario as one of my good friends and her husband of the whole like, you know, graduating medical school, moving back to the, you know, where they're from, the whole thing. And so, um, it's, it's interesting, um, that you, that you make that point. And, um, it seems to really address a lot of what you try to do seems to address where these fundamental problems are really, you know, going yeah. on and festering and, and, and it creates a cyclical situation, right? Like if these, right. if these underserved communities you know, aren't getting what And you know need. what, this is something that we've done. We've done as a country, we've had the GI bill, right? Yeah. We do that for people who serve this country. We need to incentivize our folks to serve their country. And the way we do that is we say, Hey, these are the areas we need you most. And we want to put a program similar to the GI bill, but you don't have to join the military to get so much with our nation that the color of our skin is any indication of who we are or what we think or how we'll act. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sonic's new fair phase, bringing the carnival food to you and almost immediately after to your toilet. That's right. Carnival food. Nobody asked for it, but Sonic said, fuck it. 99 cent corn dogs are never a bad idea. The yum yums include the aforementioned shitty corn dogs, cheddar peppers, which are jalapenos filled with cheddar cheese, breaded and deep fried, served with ranch dressing, and fried Oreo a la mode, which is three Oreos battered and fried served with ice cream. To repeat, they took Oreo cookies, battered them, and fried them. Literally, literally, the worst possible thing you could eat. Sonic, not one fruit or vegetable in sight, means everything's all right. This ain't the blacklist, so let's unpack this. The Second Amendment, man, can we redact this? What are we gonna do about the killing and violence? What are we gonna do about the souls who've been silenced? I'll make it easy. I wrote down a list. Some anti-weapon ammunition. How about that for a twist? Uh, last issue I want to talk to you about is is guns um, and where you stand on that. Because obviously, uh, Beto O'Rourke in the last uh, several weeks, I guess, a uh, couple months here, uh, I feel like has at least energized, re-energized his campaign a little bit, but but not, you know, because he's he's talking about guns, obviously what happened in El Paso, what's happening around the world and uh, around our country. And I'm just curious, as a person who lives in Texas, mm-hmm. how is that addressing something? Because I can imagine healthcare people could buy in. I can I can understand, you know, raising the minimum wage and, and uh, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about. But I feel like guns is one of those things that in a place like Texas, people hold on to pretty strong. Yeah, they do. And we already know that almost, you know, what is it, 97% of all Americans are for back, you know, comprehensive background checks that we need to close any loopholes and background checks, right? So that should be done immediately, right? Number one. Um, number two is... Other countries, especially on a small scale, have tried to do what um, Beto proposed. So I don't know how much you're familiar with what happened in New Zealand. They tried a big, you know, gun buyback program, right? Mm -hmm. And all that resulted was getting in about 10% of the uh, guns or the weapons that they wanted to take off the streets. So their gun buyback program 
was, you know, nowhere near successful as it needs to be. And the thing we need to keep in mind that most Americans don't talk about, one of the things that, you know, Democrats really love to talk about is, you know, bans on certain weapons like assault weapons uh, based on their definition. But here's the thing. We have tens of millions of assault weapons already out there. And the real question is, what are we going to do about that? You can, you can ban all the new sales all day long, right? But we have semi-automatic handguns and assault weapons that are out there. And I think this is something that we need to address. The fact is this. If you don't know who has what, right, then how do you actually even make a successful gun buyback problem, uh, gun buyback program? You have to know what's already out there. Just by banning future sales is not going to be the solution. So what I'm proposing is two things. One, that if you have these weapons, you need to register them and you need to get training. So you cannot get registration until you get training. Training, registration is mandated. And there's actually a very unique way to do that. The way you do it is that when you want to buy any kind of accessory or ammo for your weapon, you would be required to show your registration. And in order for you to show your registration, you would have had to go to the training. So now there's actually a way to know who has these weapons and also control exactly what they're doing and what their you know, training is around it. That's why I'm proposing registration and training in addition to full background checks. Now, on top of that, what I'm also saying is that if you want to, you know, own these guns, right, you should also be mandated to go through mental health checks on some sort of cadence, which would be covered by my health care for all. What this does is it promotes responsible gun ownership. Yes, people in Texas have guns and there's already tens of millions of assault weapons and semi-automatic guns out there. The way we can ensure that people use them responsibly, number one, 100% background checks. Number two, mental health checks on a certain cadence, fully covered by healthcare for all. And number three, registration, which requires you to be trained. And that's how we promote it. In addition to that, you can do other things, but that's how you can actually institute a program and and execute on it successfully. Well, and, and that makes sense, but I got to ask, so like for future sales of assault weapons, you're okay with that? I'm not saying I'm not against, you know, assault weapons ban. My point is just doing future sales ban won't solve the problem. Fair enough. So all I'm saying is that, look, if you really want to keep your kids safe, because here's the thing, the problem is not sales and not sales. The problem is I'm sending my six-year-old, right, to school, and I want to be completely confident that when I go to work, my kid, Tommy, is going to have a great day at school, and he's not going to be scared of drills and somebody coming in. That's the ultimate goal, right? We want to send our kids to school and have that peace of mind. And if we want true peace of mind, we have to do something about what's already out there 
regardless of what we do in the future. We can do everything we want in the future, but we have to do something about what's out there. And that's the important point that I want to make to you that nobody's really addressing. That's fair. That's fair. Um, all right. So we've talked about healthcare. We've talked about guns. We've talked a lot about uh, a lot of substance, but I got to, I got to ask one more very uh, serious question, which is um, I know barbecue is a big deal in Austin. Um, yes. I myself, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a thing when you live in the Bay Area, you gotta have like, you gotta be a vegan or a pescatarian or something. So I actually don't eat meat, but my dad, uh, loves barbecue. He lives in Austin. Uh, and he, he specifically said, I'm only going to listen to this if you ask Donna what her favorite barbecue joint is in Austin. So can you please, oh my goodness. you can go Texas. I'll let you go Texas too. This is the inner and, and Donna, This, is, this say, is a complicated answer. Okay, well, you're going to get me say, in real trouble now. But I, okay, I'm going to tell you that there, there's different answers for what you're in the mood for. Okay, so I'll start with yeah. if you want the true Texas kind of outback, laid back experience of barbecue, you have to go to the Salt Lake in Driftwood, Texas, <laughs> for that experience. Okay, I've been now, there actually. <laughs> it's very <yes>. good. <laughs> it's very cool, right? Yeah. And the, here's the thing. You don't go to Salt Lake just for the barbecue. You gotta save space because the most important thing about Salt Lake, okay, is not their bar- barbecue, but it's their um, cobbler. You mm-hmm. gotta have cobbler a la mode. That's what you really wanna save space for. That's the best thing ever after barbecue. <laughs> now, for those of you guys who are just coming in and out of Austin, I'm gonna give you the biggest secret. You wanna get the extra moist brisket from. Rudy's Barbecue. Okay. And there's no wait lines, nothing. So if you're in a rush, they have the best in and out um, experience. So, and in between, there's so many good places. I wouldn't know where to start. If you, <laughs> if you have a lot of time in your hands and you just want to hang out, there's obviously Franklin's, but you're going to have to stay in line for four to five hours. Yeah. <laughs> but those are the two biggest secrets that no one, no one, you know, will tell you. That's, you know what, you just, you just, uh, my dad's going to listen to my podcast for once. So I really appreciate that. Um, you just made my day. How about breakfast tacos? Cause those are very big there as well. Am I right? Hey, if you want breakfast tacos, I make the best breakfast tacos in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how to make them really good. What's what up? you need to do is that when you make your eggs, right, you need to put onions and jalapenos and make them really spicy and a little bit of potato and cheese. And that's the real Texas, you know, breakfast taco. Wow. Okay. Okay. See, this is, I like it. People come here to hear the substantive discussion about healthcare and guns and they, they leave, uh, with, I imagine like a very large appetite. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, if you come to Austin, uh, I'll I'll make you some of my tacos in my house and uh, see what you think. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I definitely, I I definitely, uh, I should be. Here's the thing. You know, what's the most important thing about tacos is the sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's, I feel like that's true with barbecue too. Am I right? Like, it's like, you've got a, like jazz, like I'll have, I, I like barbecue sauce, even, even though I don't eat meat, I'll eat it. I'll put it on like bread or I'll put it on other stuff, you know? You know, if you had, uh, the extra moist, uh, brisket in Austin, Texas, uh, you wouldn't need barbecue sauce. 
fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it's because you're a vegan that you need the barbecue I know. sauce. I know. I know. I gotta jazz but, it you up. You know, we have really we have really great avocados too. So Okay. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Last question for you. Um, this comes from a, a fan of the podcast here. Uh, his name's Robert Mad Dog McCauley. He lives out in Livermore, California here. He wants to know, what the hell do you love most about Texas? <laughs> Where do I start? Where do I start? You know what I really, really love about Austin, Texas specifically, is that we in the middle of December, you know, you can just be in the most casual outfits. You never need a jacket. <laughs> and the food is great, but the best thing about Texas is the people, right? The people are amazing. They're the most friendly people. And that's what makes living in Austin such an amazing experience. You go out and you can have a good time. You can listen to some live music almost any day of the week. And, and this whole beautiful kind of culture that we've created here where you can just put on your sandals and come out. That's what I love about Texas. I, uh, I, I highly endorse going to Austin and visiting. It is, as Donna has been saying, it's it, Austin's just a really cool South Congress. You've got uh, rainy street. I know dirty Sixth street. You got that, you got that craziness over there. So there's always something to do over there. There's always something to do. Yeah. Um, well, Donna, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Where can people check you out on social media and your website? Uh, I know it's, it's votefordonna.com. Where else can they check you out? Yeah, so it's vote for Donna, and that's for with F-O-R, uh, Donna, D-O-N-N-A. And I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram with, at Donna, D-O-N-N-A, I-M-A-M, I-M-A-M, that those both are M's, and then T-X. So Donna, I'm Am, TX on all the other social media. Uh, go support Donna. And uh, I, I just, it's again, awesome talking to you. Thanks so much. And uh, I will be, uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll try to say hi when I go to Austin next time. I should be over there pretty soon. So yeah, Justin, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Please let your list, I want your listeners to know we're running a completely grassroots campaign. We're taking no corporate PAC money. We're completely dependent on you. And we need every dollar because every dollar gets you closer to healthcare for all, which really, really accelerates and solves this pain point that every single American have, has. So please support us. We need you. We can't do it without you. Absolutely. And, and if you have Bernie, please tell him to endorse my healthcare for all plan. Um, I will definitely, uh, I'll definitely uh, let people know. I will also go chip in myself um, because you, uh, you seem awesome. So um, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, she is a Democrat running in Texas's 24th Congressional District, right outside of Dallas. She's also served 25 years in the U.S. Air Force, retiring as a colonel. Kim Olson, thanks so much for being my guest. It is my pleasure, Justin, and thank you for bringing news to folks on your podcast. That's awesome. 
Absolutely. Um, now, I, I got to ask, I gotta, first of all, I, I want to get into something, uh, into your background a little bit, okay? Because I know you've got, I think it's 28 years of military and public service experience. Uh, I know you've served in, in Kosovo, obviously you've led missions in Iraq. Uh, by all accounts, uh, you are a certified badass. But... <laughs> I'm wondering, Kim, do you have, and I want you to be honest with me, any earthly idea how painful bone spurs are? Uh, because the no, president does. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I can't, can't say I've suffered that. Some things have been a pain in the ass for me, but I've never had a bone spur. So. <laughs> what, what's the most painful thing you've, you've had to endure physically? I think it's something called the human heartbreak that is war. You know, war is a very brutal thing that we do to mankind. And I think sometimes the wounds you don't heal for our veterans, the wounds you don't see for our veterans tend to be the most challenging and the most long lasting. So we ask young men and women to do incredible things on behalf of our nation and sometimes those conflict with your conscience, they conflict with your morality, but you sworn allegiance to a constitution and you obey the orders of those above you. And so if you are required to destroy things, to kill people, I mean, sometimes that settles in your heart and never really leaves. And so I think that's why to your very first point, Justin, people that are gonna send America's sons and daughters off to war ought to have gone to it first and see what it really takes to do that business. And uh, it's just a shame we don't have a leader that thinks beyond his personal uh, <laughs> his personal self. Let me ask you this. To, to, to that point, I think it's a, it's a good one, right? So I think uh, I was actually a senior in high school in, in 03, right around when we went to uh, Iraq. And I... I remember, I remember back then, uh, I went to, I'm from kind of a conservative area, and I I think I was the only one in, in one of my classes who was just like, wait, you know, like, we're going to go to Iraq, like, I'm, I'm sure we can destroy it, but can we rebuild it? And, you know, I was, I was a little, you know, senior in high school, I guess, and it's kind of one of those things that, to me, I was always blown away that you had Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and of course, tons of, of, of conservatives who didn't seem to have that foresight or, or at least maybe the courage to, to, to think through it that way. Um, I'm, I don't know about you. Like, were you personally uh, opposed to it? Obviously you went there, but how did you, how did you deal with sort of your own emotions about going to Iraq and serving at the time? I know obviously that's part of your duty, but how do you deal with that? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in a general sense. And even though you're a high schooler, Justin, at the time, you know, high schoolers are pretty smart people. you got to remember the average age of our troops, especially in the Army and the Navy, is 19. Yeah. So they're right at high school kids. I mean, and so to have a insight into what? What are we going to do? So your, your question can be answered twofold. Is one, was it the right decision to go to war? And to your point, we, we won the war, and I would offer you we promptly lost the peace which, again, is, I think, the harder thing to do, and you see that after we've now been there almost 16 years. And, and we've been in Afghanistan for almost 19 or 18 now. So we have a generation of kids who have been born, and all they know is that their nation has been at war in the Middle East for the last 18 years. Mm -hmm. So it shows you just how hard it is. The easier part is 
popping things, the harder part is putting it back together. And so that's why when we were tempted to lash back at Iran after they shot down that drone, you know, I think wiser heads prevailed and gave counsel to say, this is not a country you want to take on. It is not Afghanistan. It is not Iraq. It will do very, a lot of damage to the economy that is now global, whether we like it or not, we have a global economy. So, um, so that's just on the strategic picture for, for my personal views to your point you again swear an allegiance to the constitution to protect it you you have a choice in uniform you follow the orders or you can get out i mean those are your choices you try to mitigate um, any kind of damage to your troops or to what we call collateral um, damage around when you prosecute wars uh, I was sent to Iraq, unlike Kosovo, to try to rebuild it. So I saw the back end of what war does and then try to put a country back together after that. And it, it is very, very difficult. You're right. And so it's interesting having a perspective from 30,000 feet, which is where I normally prosecute a war, and now seeing the aftermath at, at three feet. And if everybody went to war at three feet, we wouldn't be so quick to get into it. And I think that ties a bow around why we need more folks that have gone to combat and served in uniform and have done what they've been ordered to do to sit in places where these decisions get made. And so I think it's imperative we put combat vets and diversity around these political tables because maybe we'll get better decisions when it comes to sending troops overseas and what kind of countries we get involved in. Absolutely. Um, do you do you think that we may go to war with Iran soon? I hope not. Yeah. Yeah, my, look, here's how it works. The, the, the United States of America has three instruments of political power. You have the economic instrument, you have a diplomatic instrument, and then you have a military instrument. And I always think the military instrument of power should be one of the last resorts you use. And so use the economics to best leverage it. And we chose not to do that. We loaded them up with sanctions. And if you think for a New York minute, the leaders within Iran are suffering because the U.S. gives them sanctions, no. It's just the normal, everyday working people that will suffer. We decided from a diplomatic point of view to pull out of a treaty negotiated not just by the United States, but all those countries that live in that region in and around Iraq. And now we have no diplomatic leverage with them. So what you're teeing up now is that the last resort then, the only leverage we have left that we can use, and we're the mightiest in the world, we are, the United States military, is to leverage then force. Mm -hmm. And so it never, given our last two involvement in the Middle East, I'm not sure that's the wisest place to go, but we've teed ourselves up for that because we did economic sanctions because we pulled out of the nuclear mm -hmm. treaty. And now we have little leverage in that country. And if, if we don't have a say in that part of the world, other superpowers will, like China and Russia, who are already there. Right. So right. it is not in our best interest to allow other countries to influence a country that, in the Straits of Hormuz, you know, when they move the tankers in and out, mm -hmm. that's a fifth of the world's oil reserve. And even though the U.S. can fuel our own oil uh, demands, the rest of the world cannot, especially Europe and, of course, our number three trading partner, which is Japan, gets 85% of its oil from there. Mm -hmm. So 
again, if, if we get in a war and they shut down those oil fields and the ability to transfer oil through there, it, it's going to have a global impact on the economy. Today's podcast is brought to you by a Democratic firecracker, Tim Ryan. While he may look like he's constantly fighting off acid reflux, he's really just straining to find ways to improve the lives of everyday Americans. Also, there might be a little reflux in there. One can't be sure, but mostly it's just the bubbling acid of American freedom. Tim Ryan. Can we know love unless we know about pain? Uh, I want to move to a, a slightly more serious subject, which is your campaign announcement video. Uh, it went viral, as you know. Uh, and, and But I got to ask, first of all, uh, I mean, you're walking and talking to the camera for over three minutes. I, I got to yeah. ask, like, what's, what's your cardio routine like? Because I get winded just sitting in a chair and doing an interview for 25 minutes, so... Well, and I'll tell you, not, not to brag, but it took us about 10 takes. And, of course, you, you walk it, right? Yeah. And then you'd have to go back and start over. And so, <laughs> um, and of course, I'm wearing a jacket, so I was, like, soaking wet. I mean, I was just absolutely pouring with sweat. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting how inspired you get when you're really trying to deliver a message. And so a part of that walk and talk was to show that I am – committed and I am driven to help this country and that I really want to serve people. And, you know, sometimes when you're just fired up, you, you find that inner strength to, to deliver, you know, that message. But the best thing about it wasn't me delivering the message. It was those 1.8, you know, 4, 1.84 million people who saw it and were inspired by it. That's the story, is that people saw it and said, oh my gosh, you make me want to get up and clean my room, or oh my gosh, I'm going to get up and help my local candidate, or oh my gosh, I'm going to you know, reach out to someone and, and have an interview with her. I mean, that's the beauty of you know, our social platforms today, and that's the beauty of having a message that resonated with people, and that's what I'm really honored about, that that my message and my persona and my experience and what I would like to bring to the table to help us, people said yes to. They did. And and that's a good sign that, that someone who can be inclusive and collaborative and have a, have a service as their core value resonates today with people versus someone who's divisive and hateful and blames those people when things aren't going well in your life. And so that's what should give us great hope is because messages that are strong and and inclusive do resonate still in our country absolutely i I mean and i'll just i'll just throw this out there every morning maybe not every morning but every other morning i wake up i watch that video and then i (laughs) i splash cold water and i slap myself on the face like six times and i say all right it's it's go time um And, very good. Uh, and then I get into my Jeep very good. and I drive to work. <laughs> very good. Um, very no, good it is. It, it was truly inspiring. Where did you guys come up? Like, was that part of where did that idea originate from? And, and how did it go viral? Like, how did do you know, like initially sort of did, did it catch fire? Like within the first 24 hours? Like how, what happened? How did that work? 
Well, so you, you know, you do your video and, and it was interesting because you write a script for it, right? You have a message you want to give and the message has to fit the person delivering it, right? So you match the message to my personality and my, my resume basically, because it was, it wasn't a issues video. It was an introduction video to me and what I stood for and what my history was about and what I had done in this life. That's, that was the purpose of it. People were like, well, what are your issues? Where do you stand? That wasn't the objective of the video. The objective was to introduce myself to a public that, that really didn't know me. So it, there were two challenges. One is when you've had a, a life and you've had an entire career and you have a lot of experience on your belt, how do you distill that down into a two to three minute video, I and mean, it's kind of hard. So that was the first challenge for us. So we, we got it narrowed down, and then the filming of it. And I remember when we did the very first practice walk with the creator, and there were six people around me. So there was the camera guy, a boom guy, a lighting guy, there was a, a makeup girl to get all the sweat off me, there was <laughs> the man watching it on the monitor, so, and they were all walking backwards. So you talk about me, but they all pushed backwards. But, um, they wanted to do cutaways, meaning you would be talking and a picture would own the screen. And I, I remember saying to Mike as we finished the first practice round and turned and looked down that long runway and I said to him, do you see the pictures coming in beside me where I just stay on the camera the whole time? Because I had it in my head. I have a sort of photographically-like memory. I see things in the world and, you know, like movies and photographs. And to his credit, the creator goes, oh, my gosh, I see it. And so it was really fascinating where the two of our minds kind of clicked, and then he was the one that brought in all the extra stuff on the sides. Yeah. So once it got set and, and you know, you run it through its draft and, and you make sure, because you had to do it in one take. Right. And that was the key to make it, because they didn't want to cut away. So that was, that was challenging. And then you had, like, five more scenes you had to do after the fact. So we were, it was all day. It was a, about a 12-hour shoot. Now I know. Now I have great respect for actors and actresses. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and, and we had to move around our district, you know, and film yeah. places in our district. But they did a fabulous job. Yeah, with the draft and everything. And then they sent it to me, and I just, I just put it on the big screen, and I just sat there with it, and I thought, okay, I, th I think this is it. I mean, in my, in my, and here's why, Justin. It's because. It's just from my traveling around the state when I ran for my ag commissioner and visited thousands of people in this state in 2018, in my gut, I knew they wanted someone, a leader that would inspire them. And that was sort of my stump when I was, you know, um, campaigning in 18, that that's what a crowd would react to. I mean, you can't open up Twitter today without just cringing for all the negative stuff that's going on. And so to deliver another, oh, the world is bad, I think it wears people out. And so when it was, I think, inspirational, when it was kind of fiery, here was a woman who'd been a trailblazer and it's like, and I'm still going to do it. You know, that it gives, like I said, it gives people hope and not just hope, but fires them up for them to do something in their own respective words. Absolutely. So to say, yeah, to say that I know it, I knew it was a message that was going to go. I knew that. And then when it started, it got up on Twitter and a couple of really high powered people retweeted it who had, you know, like millions of followers. We knew it and we watched it all day long. I mean, it just exploded. We could hardly keep up with, with watching it. And when it went over a million, I was like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, the team calls up and they're like, I go, is this, is this like viral? And the guy goes, wait, you're going to, you're going to push almost to 2 million here. And we did. Yeah. And the other thing is it was like the first 
video of the cycle of, of the 2020 cycle that kind of jump started it was the first one it was a different message it was new you know i was new on a national stage and the cool thing is and then i'll be still here is we ended up with getting donations from every state in the union which was i thought was kind of cool That's and amazing. they were just you know 25 bucks 30 bucks it was just average you know people who to your point were fired up by it and said by golly i'm going to get behind this person because this is the kind of leader i want so that was i think fabulous and number two, for our great state, you know, Texas sent almost $200 million outside of our state supporting other candidates. And so for the first time in election year, I think we're going to have people donating into us because they know how strategically significant Texas is for the 2020 election. It, it, that really, it, it really is like mind-blowing how, how something can, can go viral. And obviously, it seems like you guys... That obviously wasn't your intention. Your intention was to just make a powerful video, and you accomplished right. that in spades. Right. But, um, I mean, has Matthew McConaughey reached out to you yet? Because I think you may be, you may have topped him when it comes to on-camera performances uh, from people out of the state of Texas right there. I mean, that was... Like. Thank you. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point because not only was it the you know the photographs and the story, it, it was also how it got delivered. I think that was there, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, to your point that oh my god, you walked and talked and and you know, and I'm doing hand gestures and I'm trying to make my points and you know, it took me a couple takes, but yeah, it was actual in the delivery in it, and, and I think it's very powerful. In a, in a day and age, Justin, where people evade the realities of who they are, they blame it on somebody else, that someone can look at you in the camera and tell you exactly who they are and what they think and what they're going to do and what their experiences are and be unapologetic about it. I, I think we're clamoring for that in today's leaders. So, so there's nothing wrong with it. I'm thinking, go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, and in, 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 in like you said, it wasn't about the. It wasn't about like what policy issues do you stand for at that moment. It's about delivering okay. something that's inspiring. But I do want to ask you about that because. Uh, you know, sure. on your website, you talk about like you're you want to fix Congress and you know you fix things, but how do you fix something like the Titanic? You know what I mean? Like this is. I feel like <laughs> yeah. Congress is, and and I don't mean that just. Uh, I guess. You know, you hear people a lot of times be like, "Well, we got to, we got to world peace. We've got to get world peace. We've got to, you know, save the planet. We need to end homelessness." Like, these are things that are huge, huge, huge issues. That frankly, I don't, I don't know if we will ever accomplish like fully. Right? They're always being perfected, or they're like we can always make progress. But um, right. I guess how do you how do you try to tackle? I mean, just today, you, you've got Liz Cheney. You've got you know, different folks in the Republican Party doubling down on Trump's racist tweets. Like, you know, you've got a lot of Republicans who won't just call it what it is and, and call it racist. And, and you know, it's like, how do you try to change something that doesn't seem to ever want to change in any way and, and seems beholden right now to a president who uh, seems to just, you know, own them? You know, and that in lies your challenge. And that's, that's, I mean, that's a very, very uh, good point and very insightful on your part. And you could stand back and say, oh, my gosh, it'll never be well enough. And it's it, to his point about, you know, love it or leave it kind of thing. And what I would offer to you is I, I would change that quote and say, because I love it, it being our country, um, I want to fix it. 
Right. And so to your point about, okay, so what does fixing it look like? Well, first of all, you have, to, you have to stop the backslide and you have to put a light on what's going on. One of the reasons, if you go back to 1933, students of history, and you thought, how did a reasonable country like Germany end up where it did in 1944? And it is because it was these little things that he did that began to then tip the country towards, you know, the country that we got in which millions of people were systematically exterminated. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you have to bring light to that. So going down and visiting the kids in the cages, having a different view, because if you took the Republicans' view of the migrants down there or the immigrants or folks that are uh, seeking asylum, you, you think all was well. But when another set of eyes, and especially eyes that are diverse, look at it, they see it in a different light. You know, so I think that's the first thing, is shining lights on this stuff and getting things out in the open is absolutely critical. And with social media today, it is very difficult to hide things like you could have in the 30s. So that we've got going for us. Number two is we have record number of women, women of color, and diversity. And by diversity, I mean socioeconomic, religion, you know, all the things that make us America who she is running for office. And so that means that we will have diversity sitting around those power political tables, which can bring better voices and better representation to those tables. And so that, that's the second thing. And then the third is, you know, in order to get things done in Congress, we have systems in place and we can blow it up if we want to. But the better way is if you don't like the laws, then we change them. You know, we've had a lot of laws in this nation that were absolutely, you know, we look back at them now in the 21st century and go, well, were we insane? But those were laws in the day. You yeah. could be arrested. You could be put to death. I mean, so if, if laws are made by man and they can be fixed by women. <laughs> so so that's how you do it if you don't you know and so my my point being is then you get on when you go to congress you get on those committees of which your representative sent you to and said look we sent you to congress to do this this is this is what representative government is all about this is the piece i think republicans have forgotten that they are supposed to represent all the people in their districts, not just a select few that you happen to agree with. So that's the other thing. And then you got to stay in power. I mean, part of our trouble right now is because we have a split house. The, yeah. the house we have, the Senate we do not. So any good work we would do in the house gets killed in the Senate by folks that have been there for 40 years. Think about that. Yeah. 40 years. Yeah. The woman running against them, right? Was, was like born when he went into, into the house. I mean, it right. is time for you to go. It is a different yeah. America than the one you entered in 1950 or whatever you came into power. Right. So that's why diversity in age is also important and mm-hmm. in, in bringing different leaders for the time. And this, this crap of, like the soccer gal said, make America great from what time? You know, in the 1930s, you could be, you know, put in jail if you were gay. In the 1940s, you couldn't, you know, women couldn't do anything getting out of the house till we went to war. In the 1950s, you couldn't live in different parts. If your skin color, you practiced a different religion. 
in the 60s, you couldn't fit in a bus. You know, when was it great for those folks? In the 70s, we finally got it so that my mom could buy a house without her dad or brother's permission. I mean, so I don't know when you think it was, you know, America's an incredible nation and I wore a uniform to defend her. But it was only great for those in power. And that's the biggest thing, Justin, is you, you got to put people who are in power in check because with great power comes great responsibility. And that's, I think, the part that bothers people so much about your, our president and the Republican Party is you have abrogated your responsibility as one of the legislative branches of government to hold the executive branch in check and accountable. Right. Right. And that's their fa- that will be their failing, I believe, as a party. It will. Well, and, and you hit it, uh, you, hit, you made a great point within that, too, which is that questioning power uh, and being skeptical, I feel like, is one of the most patriotic things you can do, you know, without right. cynicism. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I fight my own cynicism, uh, you know, and at the same time, I think that it's extremely important to be able to, you know, make progress right and and i think that's that's the idea i mean you, you went through the history of like the different decades and who america wasn't great for and it you know it's this continuum of trying to make progress and you know when we take steps back when we pull out of the paris climate accord we, we had made a huge step there we had made a huge step with iran and we're, we're seeing ourselves pull back and so uh Hopefully you win, and hopefully uh, you're able to to course correct some of that and and then go from there and and continue to make it better. Today's podcast is brought to you by Joe Biden's revolutionary new health care plan, Jobamacare. Jobamacare, it's different, we swear. Take our word for it and don't compare. Jobamacare. Treat those shingles with our catchy jingles. And I've been listening to old Bob Dylan. He was saying this before. We well, I was just going to say that I, I was in D.C. last two months ago and came across a young freshman from the outside of the aisle, a Republican up here in North Texas. And he said to me, he goes, I just can't wait for you to get up here. I just can't wait for us to work together. Yeah. And I thought to myself. You know, because those that have been there 40 and 50 years, they get their power by the dysfunctionality of it. I mean, think about it. And so he said, there are people who've been here for 40 years that hate each other and they'll never work together. Even though it costs our country, they will never work together because their power structure is based on this adversarial relationship. So that you got to change and show that you can have partners across the aisle, that you can work with different branches of government for the greater good of the country, not your personal career. And that's what's kind of interesting about all these folks that are running. None of us are, none of us are politicians and none of us are, are career people. We're just, we're called to stand up and try to represent, you know, those that, that are going to vote us into office. And, and I think that's, I think that's fabulous. And it's good that your generation is stepping up. We have to have you. You're the bench strength. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, hosting podcasts is pretty much saving the world here. So, <laughs> yep. no, uh, no, it is. No, Cause it, you give voices and you know, the media is just as important as the military, you know, the media is what allow, and those that, you know, put voices out there. The first amendment is there for a reason. And we can't just cause you dissent doesn't mean you're not patriotic. And so you're absolutely right. 
and say, we have to have you. And, mm-hmm. and the day we don't, the day we're, we're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I applaud anybody that works in the media, anybody that puts out you know, opinions across the spectrum. We, we have to have that in this country. Yeah, yeah, I think dialogue and, so and, thank you. and participation, well, <laughs> that's, that's very humbling, but, but I appreciate that. Um, let me a few cut few other questions. I got to uh, get to a Texas lightning round and ask you about your favorite Texas things that are that are out there. So, okay. uh, but I, as far as just being on the campaign trail, I know um, you know you've you've been on the camp. You were agri- agriculture secretary in, in, in Texas, Correct. is that right? Yeah, and you Correct. were out. Yeah. Um, I read that you were passing out seeds on the campaign trail. Is that correct? Uh, for yeah, jackets. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what are you doing this time? Are you passing out bomber jackets? Like what? Because those can get expensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Little wings. I'll pass out little wings. No, <laughs> I actually, actually, you know, I have seed packets again. So even though I'm running in a, a very um, urban setting, urban suburban setting, you know, bees still need flowers to exist and, and pollinators still need to exist. And it's interesting when you hand somebody a seed packet, it automatically makes them smile. Yeah. So part of the objective is being able to hand something that makes them feel good. And two, it's a it's an awesome calling card. I've, I've gotten more compliments. And here's the best part is you say to people, look, I'm planting seeds literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because now now it's spring, you know, or late spring in Texas when I was back out on the trail mm-hmm. and people are saying to me, oh my gosh, your seeds are growing. I have wildflowers <laughs> in, in my yard right now. And so it's like, so see, you can have incredible lasting impact as you, as you run on the campaign trail that, that make people still, that not make, that um, help people to stay inspired and stay in politics. Because, you know, we won a lot in Texas, but we also lost. I mean, the guy that was the rock star, Beto, you know, he lost by three points. As hard as we worked, as much as we surged, as much money that came into our state, he still fell short against the guy and not a lot of people liked. Right. And so you mm-hmm. got to keep the electorate and those activists and those hardworking I call them women and men in comfortable shoes, you know, fired up. So I think a a politician or somebody who's running as a candidate ought to give people something that that helps them stay engaged and help them stay fired up. If you get to Congress and you can champion one issue... When, when? yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. So when you get to Congress, you get you, you, if you can champion one issue, right? You know, like Ted Kennedy was known for his championing educational uh, causes. What's the yeah. one issue you would stand for? Like over, you know, what, what's that one thing that you want to be known for? If, if I'm sure a lot of things, but what's the one thing? Yeah, there's a lot. You know, I'm a multifaceted woman. I know. I'll tell you one from I'll tell you one from a from a personal point of view, and because you would be sending a veteran, a female vet. And there are only two in Congress right now, and Texas has the largest population of vets, both male and female, that I would, I would advocate for, you know, ending these perpetual wars. And, and to peel that onion back a little bit, number one, it would change our status in the world to begin to re-engage from an economic and diplomatic point of view. That would be number one, because right now half the, you know, half, we have an acting UN, we have an acting, you know, ambassadors all over the place. We have lost our position on a global stage as, you know, the adult in the room sometimes. So that that's number one. Number two is perpetual wars um, 
are very costly, $4 trillion so far, and 7,500 men and women who gave up their collective futures for ours and 50,000 injured with families, you know, um, living with those consequences. And so by pulling back and only going to war within its strategic it makes the nation re-examine itself versus staying embroiled in these things for decades at a time. So there's a, a finance, there's a financial cost to our country, and then there's a human cost to our country, and then there is a leadership cost. So it's sort of this triangle of three things. I and I think when you have that experience on both sides of the spectrum, making peace and making war, that you have, a, then you are, a, you can be a very strong advocate because you speak from a position of firsthand experience, and you can address that um, without being seen as, you know, anti-war or anti-military or anti, you know, whatever. Right. And so I think you should leverage that. That's part of, I think, your responsibility by having this experience behind you. It's a great answer. Um, especially having a, well, and the last thing, especially, especially the woman, you know, and, and a retired colonel because, you know, I... <laughs> I've earned my chops. I mean, I've earned every wrinkle and gray hair on me. And and today I'll speak as a mom because I have a son deployed to the same conflict zone that I served in almost 20 years ago. Wow. And that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We should be better than that as a country. Right. We just, yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, and so nobody can say to me that I, that I don't have skin in this game. I do. I, I got a son. So. Um. And and um, hats off to him as well. Weighing every moment to decide what it's worth, and now I'm done looking back, and I'm vetting my facts, and I'm fixing this crap so the world isn't scrapped. Today's podcast is brought to you by Lester Holt's hairline, receding since 1994. Hashtag Sevenhead. Can we have win? Um, all right, so so Texas Lightning round. Um, and by the way, I appreciate okay. uh, you're you're okay on time and everything right now. I, I know we're running a yeah. little past. Okay, uh, we'll we'll, uh, yeah. we'll make sure to wrap up soon here. But thank you so much for this has been uh, awesome. Um, all right, your favorite Texas bar slash restaurant. <laughs> I like what's ca- it's called the Ginger Man, and it's a bar that has lots of beers, different kinds of beers. So. Mm-hmm. I like beer. Where I like beer too. So where is this? Where because I actually have family in Austin. So my brother, and my dad are in Austin. Like where? Where is uh, the Ginger Man at? Well, there's three of them. There's one in Fort Worth. There's one up here in, in North uh, North Texas, or on my side in the Northeast County area. I think there's like three of them. Okay. So okay. Yeah. Um, favorite Texas band slash musician. So I like Kelly Clarkson. She comes out of, uh, she yields out of the Dallas, uh, Dallas area. I, I like her music. I think she's a, she's kind of a musical badass. I like her. <laughs> uh, favorite Texas politician? And you can say George W. Bush. It's okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I lo- and it's funny because people compare me to her, which just always honors me, is, is Ann Richards. Yeah. I think a woman who, you know, took Texas by the horns and yeah. unintended and raffled her to the ground and, and showed a woman could do it in, you know, in a time where uh, maybe not. So we could use some more powerhouse Texas women out there, I think, especially in Congress. She, she, she was, I, I remember seeing her when I was, you know, middle school, high school area. I mean, she was, she was awesome. She was funny as hell. Yeah. Um, two more. Uh, favorite Texas sports team? 
Well, I'm over here by the Rangers. I, I like them. I go to their games, and I, I think they're a cool team. So I, I like the Rangers. Right. Well, I'm an A's fan, so, uh, you know. <laughs> we, we... We'll give it to you. Okay, last question for you. I'm coming to if I'm coming to Texas, right? Uh, and I yeah, okay. I'm, I'm gonna stop by Austin. I'm gonna see some family. Where do I go though for like a maybe a day trip or a, a quick weekend trip to go vacation to within Texas? Oh, I go to like Port Aransas. That that's a neat place down there. What is that? It's just where is that? It, it's on the it's on the Gulf Coast. Okay. You know, it's just just due south, just go due south. It's just, it's neat. You know, it's kind of like the old time, you know, boardwalky kind of place, the, you know, the shoreline and yeah. big, big beaches, you know, deep beaches and long. You can drive on sand and sit there. And I, I, I like that place. Kim, thank you so much for, for chatting oh, with you're me. Welcome. This has been, this been awesome. Yeah. I, I could, I could keep asking you questions and uh i'm sure you would you would eventually just hang the phone up on me but um <laughs> i i really appreciate you talking with me and uh uh best of luck uh when when you are elected to congress um i, I can't like wait uh to follow uh, hopefully i can i can chat with you and catch up when you're uh, actually in dc and uh talk about all the stuff that you're you're taking care of and, and accomplishing in there Awesome. We'll do that. Let's just put that on the calendar. We'll make that happen. How about that? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. And, and again, you bet. And I'm serious. Thanks for what you do. We oh, need you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. take, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.